Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you as, as we started off our worship time with this morning. Your word is what revives us. It doesn't matter what affliction we are going through. It doesn't matter what we experience, what heartache, what pain, what confusion, what depression, what fear we go through. It is your word that revives us. It is your word that breathes life into us, that breathes boldness and strength and peace and comfort into us to go forth into this world and to be the light in the midst of this darkness. Lord, we thank you that your word is something we can always cling to. It is always timeless. It will never change. Even as the world changes constantly around us, we can always anchor our souls into your word. So, Lord, we come before you this morning as the kids are with Aunt Pat learning from your word downstairs and we're here learning from your word, that your spirit would go forth and you would revive us. You would breathe new life into us through your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. According to a Smithsonian Magazine article published a little over a year ago, there was a recent study done in the U.S. and 40 other countries to see how frequently random people would return a lost wallet to its owner. In the study, a researcher would approach a random person in a public place, like a bank or a store and tell them they found a wallet but had to leave quickly and ask that person if they could make sure that it got back to its owner. These wallets were clear business card holders with uh, a key, a grocery list in that country's language, and a few business cards giving a fictitious mail's name and email address on that business card. Some of these transparent wallets contained a small amount of cash and some didn't. This study was done in 355 cities in these 40 countries. And interestingly, taking the average return percentage of all 40 countries, some were less and some were greater, but taking the average return percentage of all 40 countries, 40% 40 of these strangers contacted the email address and returned the wallet without cash, compared to 51% who returned them with cash. Now that's surprising, isn't it? And that surprised the research team who had hypothesized that the percentage of return would clearly decrease if there was cash in the wallet. That would have been my hypothesis too. That would have been my exact same thought too. So then this research team took three of those 40 countries, the US, the UK, and Poland, I don't know why they threw Poland in there, but they, and decided to try the experiment again with everything the same about these lost wallets, but increasing the amount of cash in some wallets to just under $100. And they saw if that would change anything. Well, it did change things. What was even more surprising was that of these three countries, 46% returned the wallets with no cash. 61% returned the wallets with a little bit of cash in them. And 72% actually returned the wallets with the $100 left in them. 
72%. That is truly surprising, I think, isn't it? Most of the time, the researchers would respond to the strangers by acting like the fictitious male and saying that they had already left town and they didn't care what happened to the cash in the wallet or the key. The strangers were then told that they could keep the cash or donate it to charity. However, in a subset of those who received lost wallets, the researchers asked for the wallets to be returned to see if those strangers would actually go through the effort of doing so. So what is even the most surprising statistic that comes out of all of this is that 98% of that subset actually went through the effort to return those wallets. 98%. That is truly surprising. In none of these scenarios was there any kind of reward promised. There wasn't anything where it's like, if you return my wallet, I'll give you $200 or something like that. There was no reward promised at all. So why did these strangers even go through the initial effort of emailing this fictitious man to begin with? The research team studied all of their findings to see if even the presence of security cameras or each country's laws for finding lost properties made any kind of difference, but they couldn't find any meaningful correlations. So the conclusion was that especially when more lost cash was involved, most people did the right thing and contacted the fictitious man to try to return a wallet. With so much bad, dark, and scary news going on around the world right now, I found that to be a refreshing story of good still left in the world. What was also surprising about the findings of this study, like I already mentioned, is that even though there was no reward promised for the, ret the return of the cash-filled wallets, most people still went through the effort of attempting to returning them. But that's just the simple act of returning a wallet. That's just the simple act of returning a wallet. You contact the man, you say, I found your lost wallet, uh, how can I get it back to you? That's just a very simple act. When Jesus calls us to faith in him, and we answer by committing our lives to following him, no matter what, that, may, that takes astronomically more sacrifice than sending an email or returning a, a wallet, isn't it? When, God, when, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he requires complete faithfulness, and that may result in tremendous loss in this world. It may even result in death. Unlike the wallet study, not promising any sort of reward for a simple act, God knows how much Jesus' followers are giving up. And so he does promise a reward. But in our parable today, how that's given out may shock us. How that reward is given out may shock us. Like the past couple of parables, an event happens that initiates Jesus telling a story to drive his point further home. Last week, it was Peter asking Jesus how many times he should have to forgive someone else. That precipitated Jesus then telling the story about the greedy, formerly, those, of, those who either were here last Sunday or watched or listened to this message later online, knows that it was formerly forgiven tax official, right? 
This week, the event that precipitates Jesus telling this parable to drive his point further home is an honest question that Peter asks Jesus. Peter asks Jesus, We've given up everything to follow you. Everything. What will we get? What will we get in return? Now, the whole reason why Peter even brings up this question, this doesn't come out of nowhere. The entire reason why Peter even brings this up was because a rich young man approaches Jesus and asks him what he must do to inherit eternal life. When Jesus responds, sell everything you have and follow me, that young man walked away discouraged because his grip on worldly possessions was too great to do that. Jesus then tells his disciples that it's easier for a camel to walk through the tiny hole of a sewing needle than for those who refuse to relinquish their hold on worldly possessions to enter heaven. Contrary to what other, some other people might say, this wasn't just a small gate in Jerusalem that Jesus was talking about. He was literally talking about the tiny eye of a sewing needle. That's how impossible Uh, It was for those who could not relinquish their grip on worldly possessions to enter heaven. When the disciples couldn't believe what they were hearing and asked the question, well, who then has any hope of entering heaven? Jesus pointedly answers that with people it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that was the point. There is no way for people to earn or even buy their way into heaven. It must be an act of God saving them. And through that, impossibility is turned into reality. The only way anyone can enter heaven is to accept that Jesus paid for their sin and ask God for forgiveness of that sin. See, that turned the way that everyone who followed Judaism at that point completely on its head. Turned the way they saw everything in the world completely on its head, and here's why. As one biblical scholar pointed out, the Pharisees, those good old Pharisees, had been teaching for years that God shows his love towards people by giving them earthly riches. Sadly, that sounds all too familiar today with preachers who preach the same thing. Now, you will know God loves you if you have a lot of money. So for Jesus' disciples to hear that rich people were not just automatically going to enter his messianic kingdom, that was completely unheard of. That thought never even entered their mind. This shook up everything they had ever known or heard. So if rich people weren't getting into the kingdom, what hope did anyone have of entering his kingdom? That's what prompted Jesus to hint at the real basis for entering his kingdom, that it will only be possible through God. That started to get Peter thinking, though. He starts thinking, Whoa, whoa, wait a second. If earthly riches itself isn't proof of entering the kingdom, and we've given up everything in this world to follow Jesus, are we going to get anything?
for following Jesus? Is there anything in it for us? When we first think of this question, we might think, who in the world does this guy think he is? That's a pretty self-centered question, isn't it? What am I going to get out of following Jesus? But when you really think about it, it's understandable. It's, it's very understandable. And it's a pretty honest question. In that world where poverty and destitution meant so much sickness and death, when these guys gave up their earthly means of living to follow Jesus, they were sentencing themselves to that kind of earthly life. We know that God is not heartless. We know that. He rewards those who seek after him. His word tells us that. His word promises us that. That he rewards those who seek him. No, not Bill Gates' kind of earthly reward. Jesus gives the peace-giving truth of what, will be, of what that will be next. And he says, everyone who has given up houses, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or property, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. See, the reward is not just inheriting eternal life, even though that's far greater than anything we could ever hope for. There's also an additional reward to that. But here's the, here's the kicker. Many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will actually be the greatest then. This means that if anyone in this earthly life places God and his plan ahead of everything and everyone else and what they deem important in this life, they will inherit everything they can inherit in the coming kingdom. Those are huge words of peace and validation to those who have everything to lose in this life and world for their faith. And they lose it all, and they give it all up. But Jesus isn't done with this topic. He next tells a story to drive his point further home. And that shocking parable is what we're going to cover today. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 20. If you didn't, there, that, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Matthew 20. Or you can download the free Bible app from life.church in your app store and also look for Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to start in the first couple of verses here. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them out into his vineyard. Again, like I've been saying the past several weeks, we know this is a parable because Jesus starts the story out with something like, for the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. That's how we know it's a parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like. And in this story, it's the relationship between a landowner and the men he hires to work in his vineyard. Jesus starts out first by describing how a landowner needed some men to harvest grapes from his vineyard. He, he had so much land and so many grape plants, he wasn't going to be able to harvest all this himself. So he goes to the marketplace to hire some men to come into his vineyard. 
where, where men were looking for day jobs and they would be hanging out in the marketplace and the landowners would go and say, I need you, 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 and you. You come with me, I'll pay you a denarius for the day, come and work in my field. So that's exactly what this landowner does. He goes into the marketplace, finds some guys hanging out, looking to be hired for the day, says, I have some harvesting for you to do, you come with me, I'll pay you a denarius. That's what they agreed upon uh, price was, what, what, their, what their wage was going to be. So he brings them back to his vineyard and sets them to work. We know from uh, uh, other studies done that a denarius was a coin back in Jesus' day that was worth one full day of a day's work. That's what you would get. You would work uh, a full day and you'd get a denarius and you could buy bread and, and whatever else you needed to with that. What happens next is curious, if it happened in real life. But it's pertinent to Jesus' point in verses 3 through 4. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Apparently, the landowner didn't hire enough men the first time around to harvest his land's grapes. So at the third hour, or 9 a.m., he goes back to the marketplace and finds some more men looking to be hired for the day. But notice in verse 4 what the landowner tells him he will pay them. Does he tell them he'll pay them a denarius each? No. He just tells them that he'll pay them what's right. Right? Whatever is right, I'll pay you. Now, we're not told what the standard for this is, nor what the amount paid would be. Those who were hired at 9 a.m. would just have to work hard and see what they'd be paid. That's, that's what they were awaiting by the end of the day. It was just, well, we're just at the mercy of the landowner, and we're just going to get whatever he thinks is right to pay us. Whereas the first ones who were hired at the beginning of the day they knew they were at least getting a denarius. You would think that, certainly at this point, the landowner would have had enough men to harvest his land's grapes, but apparently not. Now we read that the landowner once again goes back to the marketplace to find even more men to hire for the harvest at noon and then again at 3 p.m. We read in verse 5, and again, he went out about the 6th, that's noon, and the ninth hour, which is, which is 3 p.m., and did the same thing. This guy does not plan very well, does he? He keeps realizing, boy, I didn't hire enough guys to harvest all these grapes. I need to keep finding more guys to come harvest. Now, why did I mention, why, why I mentioned that this was curious, if this happened in real life, is why did this landowner do this in the first place? Why did he hire different men at so many different times of the day? Well, we're not told why he goes back to the marketplace and finds more guys to work in his field. And as one biblical scholar noted, we're probably not meant to read too much into that. It's just part of the story that Jesus is telling. Perhaps this landowner in this story was disorganized. 
And he didn't realize how many men he would eventually need to harvest all the grapes he had in his vineyard. And he kept realizing as the day wore on, wait a second, I still have most of my grapes left here. I better go find more guys to harvest more here. We'll find out the point of this landowner doing this at the end of the story. Eventually, the landowner goes back into the marketplace one last time, verses 6 through 7. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the phrase standing idle most likely does not mean that these last guys to be hired were lazy. They wanted to work. But as what would ha often happen with this setup was that sometimes there just wasn't enough work to go around for all the guys looking for work. And some guys hadn't been hired by anyone by the end of the day. That's exactly what these guys say in response to the landowner. No one has hired us. We've been looking for work all day, but no one has hired us. The landowner then thinks, hey, I've got money to pay these guys and there's still work left to be done, so I'll hire these remaining men, too, looking for an honest day's work. Here's the thing. Typically, a full work day lasted 12 hours. You think you work a lot <laughs> today. It lasted 12 hours each day, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's how long a work day lasted. The first workers were hired early in the morning, or 6 a.m. The workers this landowner hires last at the 11th hour is 5 p.m., and they would only have then worked for how long? An hour, right? At most, they would have only worked for an hour. However, we're not told how much this landowner told these guys that were hired at 5 p.m. how much they would be paid. He just says, you also go into the vineyard. He doesn't tell them how much he's going to pay them. They may not have cared at that point. They were probably happy to be hired by anyone that day to earn any amount of family uh, money to feed their families. Remember, a denarius was enough to buy you a day's worth of food. If you weren't hired to work on a certain day, you didn't have enough money to buy food for your family for that day. So these guys were probably just happy to earn any amount of food to be able to go to the marketplace to buy any amount of food to feed their families. Now we've come to the end of the work day. It's now 6 p.m. The whistle blows. The work is over and it's time for the workers to be paid. Remember the workers hired at 6 a.m. were promised how much for that day's work? A denarius, right? They were promised what was customary, a, a denarius. Those hired at 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. were simply told they would be paid whatever the landowner decided was right. They headed into that field not knowing what they were going to be paid, but they went in anyways. They were determined to work hard and get paid whatever the landowner decided they should be paid. And those hired at 5 p.m. were not even told anything about what they would be paid. And that's what brings us to verse 8. 
When the evening came, or 6 p.m., the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. The landowner tells the foreman, or the guy he put in charge over all the ones he hired from the marketplace, the workday is over. Call all the hired men in and pay them their wages. Do you notice in what order the landowner tells the foreman to start paying these guys? What order? From last to first, isn't it? Jesus wanted his disciples to very clearly connect this story with what he had just told them. He just said right here to to, uh, uh, Peter, those who seem the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important will be greatest then. He's using that exact same concept in this parable now. He's paying, the foreman is paying these men last to first. And he's going to repeat that phrase at the very end of this parable. Those hired at 5 p.m. and who had only worked an hour at most came, not expecting much. They weren't even told what they would get paid. After all, they weren't given any assurance of any amount of pay and knew they had only worked for an hour. They probably came to the foreman with their heads down, thinking, I, I, I did what I could, but I'm, I'm not expecting much. I know this is going to be a bad day. This is going to be a bad day. It's going to be a bad evening. i got to go home to my wife and my kids and say, this, this is all I earned. This is all we can use to buy food for today. They came. They knew they only worked for an hour, but this is what ended up happening. Verse 9. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received, whoa, a denarius. Each of those guys who had only worked at most for an hour got paid for a full day's work. That is shocking. That is incredible. That is unheard of. That would have blown everybody's mind who was there, right there. These guys weren't expecting much of anything. They were expecting to go home incredibly discouraged with with a few pennies. But they go home with a full day's pay, an entire denarius. These guys would have been so overjoyed at their boss's graciously overwhelming generosity, they couldn't help but express their huge gratitude. I'm sure they thanked the landowner profusely before they went on their way. Thank you so much. You are too good. You are too gracious. You are too generous. Now remember, this payment to these 5 PMers, to these guys who only worked an hour, it's extremely gracious, extremely generous, and extremely shocking, isn't it? This wouldn't happen in real life. They certainly didn't earn it, nor did they even appear to have earned it. They couldn't even pretend to have earned it. They knew that the landowner knew that everybody knew that they only worked for an hour. They knew that everybody knew that they didn't earn it. They couldn't even pretend to have earned it. But keep that group of people in mind. They still got paid for a full day's work. We're not told what the landowner paid the 9 a.m. guys noon guys or the 3 p.m. guys. We're not told. 
It might have been a denarius each, but it might not have been. We're not told. We were told that he would pay them what he thought was right. Not a specific amount. And then we're not told how much he pays them. He just completely skips over them. Jesus completely skips over these groups of guys. We're not told what their reaction is to what they get paid either. And I think there's a point to that. These guys didn't know what they were going to get paid. And we don't know what they ended up being paid. All we know, what we do know about them, is that they worked hard and they did what was expected of them, not knowing what they were going to be paid. They worked hard. They did what was expected of them nonetheless. It didn't matter to them what their reward was going to be. They still went out in the field and worked hard. They knew they were going to get something, whatever that would be, so they did what was expected. And for that reason, they were probably also grateful for what they received, no matter what it was, because there was no pretense and there was no specific expectation on their part. Now, it comes time to pay those who worked a full 12-hour day out in that vineyard. These guys were the first ones up. They were the first ones out in the marketplace. They were the first ones to be hired. They worked a back-breaking job in the heat of the sun for the longest period of time. Think about, we, we go out and do uh, uh, work out in our yards during the summer in 90 degree New Jersey heat and humidity. That's pretty tough, isn't it, on some of these days? Imagine working a back-breaking job for 12 straight hours in the Middle East. That would be draining. <laughs> that would take everything out of you. That, in the Middle East, that was incredibly hard and tiring work. These guys just watched those who had worked for only an hour and barely broke a sweat make out like bandits by getting a denarius each. Think about what's starting to go through their minds at this point. They probably start murmuring to each other, oh man, what does that mean for us? We're probably going to get at least double that. We might even be able to take the day off tomorrow because we'll get paid so much today. That's exactly what scripture says next in verse 10. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But what ends up happening? But each of them also received a denarius. Wow. That's it. These guys' anticipation and dreams of untold wealth are crushed in one fell swoop. When the first of them goes up to the foreman with his hands open and his eyes wide open and in drops one denarius into his hands. He probably just stood there staring at that one denarius in disbelief, not moving. Not believing it. Waiting for something else to be dropped in his hands. That is not fair. That is not fair. We read that as humans, and we cringe. 
We think, oh man, no, that is not right. That is not right. Something should happen to this landowner. That is not fair to these guys. These guys bore the brunt of the harshness of the work and the heat. If I was one of these guys hired at 6 a.m., and I came up to the foreman with all that anticipation and dropped one denarius, I probably would have grumbled too, as any one of us here would, I'm sure. And that's exactly what happens, verses 11 through 12. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. That reaction is, not, is no surprise at all. That is not surprising to us at all. That is the natural human reaction to this unfairness. And it's quite understandable. I feel for these guys. I would, probably would have responded the exact same way. Any one of us would have res responded the exact same way. But this is the landowner's response that while still seemingly unfair, when you really stop and you strip away all the emotional factor from all of it, he's right. He's actually right. You read verse 13. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Isn't that what we agreed upon before you even entered the vineyard? Yes, he's right. That was the agreement. They went into that vineyard only expecting a denarius at 6 a.m. because that was the agreed-upon price, the agreed-upon wage. They were told up front. The landowner did not lie to them. The landowner did not pull anything on them. They were told up front they'd get a denarius for a day's worth of work because that was customary. And the, those 6 a.m. guys agreed to that. That was the agreement. They went into that vineyard agreeing to that rate. In fact, there's nothing surprising about that because, again, that was the usual daily rate. They would have thought, a denarius? That, that, that's just what I'm supposed to get. That's customary. Sure, great, I'm hired, wonderful. I'll go into your vineyard. Not even thinking about it. The surprising factor was what those hired for an hour got paid. But the first hired men's wage should not have been surprising to them. They should have been expecting that. The landowner further explains his decision. Verses 14 through 15. Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? I've done nothing wrong. I've broken no law. Or is your eye envious because I am generous. That was the problem. That was the problem. It wasn't the landowner's problem. If I was one of those guys that was hired at 6 a.m., I'd, I'd be pretty ashamed at this point. I, th I think any one of us here would be too. I'd be pretty ashamed at this point because, you know what? They got no leg to stand on. The landowner is absolutely right. He's absolutely right. It's not the hired men's decision or right to determine their payment. They get paid whatever they're told or they agree upon. The rest is entirely on the landowner. It's his vineyard. 
It's his decision to hire who he wants to hire. And it's his decision and his money to pay them. And it's his decision how much to pay them. Because of that, the hired men, any of them, those who were hired at 6 a.m., those who were hired at 5 p.m., any of them, any of the hired men, don't even have the right to be envious of each other and just be grateful for what they receive. In reality, they weren't even cheated out of what was promised to them. They weren't even cheated out of what was originally promised to them. They weren't wronged. They weren't cheated out of what was even right for a full day's work. They worked for a full day, and they got paid for a full day. They didn't even get cheated out of that. They received exactly what had been promised to them, regardless of what anyone else received. They have no connection to what anyone else receives out of the landowner's generosity. And then Jesus ends this story the exact same way he sets it up. Verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first last. He starts out the parable by telling Peter in verse, in, in chapter 19, verse 30, the many who are first will be last, and the last first. Then he bookends this with, so the last shall be first, and the first last. He wants that point to be so clear, so undeniable, they can't get past that. Now, it's generally agreed on by biblical scholarship that we shouldn't read too far into the order of the man hired when interpreting this. Some see the concept of deathbed conversions as those hired at 5 p.m. to faith in comparison to those who have walked with Jesus their entire lives or those hired at 6 a.m. Some see that in this parable. Or some see read into this parable that Jesus is comparing those who were Jewish in background in their faith in Jesus to those who were Gentile, who came in later to faith in Jesus. But none of these comparisons that people interpret out of this parable are Jesus' point. And so we shouldn't read too far into this parable in terms of the order of men hired and what that means. Jesus is not driving at if somebody receives Jesus as their Savior at one second before they die as somebody who's hired at 5 p.m. compared to somebody who's walked with him for decades or somebody who worked at started work at 6 a.m. He's not comparing those. That's not his point. That's not what his focus is on here. His focus is on what the landowner does in paying these different people. His focus is what is on what the landowner or God determines is the right reward for how one's life is lived here on earth. That's what the focus is on. This is not connected to salvation. Don't, don't be scared of that. This is not connected to salvation or access granted into the kingdom. What God is talking what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about reward. But what he is talking about, what this is directly connected to, is reward one will gain as a follower of Jesus upon entrance into his kingdom. 
He's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about basic entrance into his kingdom. He's talking about reward that will be given upon a believer in Jesus' entrance into his kingdom. Just like with the human reactions to the payment for their work, there's going to be some shock as to how much or how little certain people actually get when Jesus starts giving out reward. There's going to be some shock. That's Jesus' point. There's going to be some shock here, guys. There are going to be some who look like they barely did anything noteworthy for the kingdom of God. But when we get to heaven, they're going to be overwhelmingly rewarded for everything they did that no one else but Jesus knew that they did. And there are going to be some who did work hard and who everyone saw as working hard all their lives. And they will also get a reward, but perhaps not as much as others. The last will certainly be first. But just as the landowner chastised those he hired first, our focus must be on being grateful for what reward God does give to us, no matter how much that is. And here's why. God does promise to reward those who live their lives first and foremost for his kingdom. He promises that. There's nothing that's going to take that away. But it's his right as to how much he's going to give. It's his right as to what he's going to distribute to who. Like the majority of those in our opening story who didn't care if there was any reward, much less what that would be, but only wanted to do good, those hired at 9 a.m. and noon and 3 p.m., they didn't care what the payment was going to be. They went out in the field and they worked hard. Our focus on this earth must also be to live our lives as pleasing to God as we can, knowing we'll get a reward, knowing we'll get something, but also knowing we'll be grateful for whatever that is. That should be what our focus is on. So what kind of reward are you earning? Well, really stop and think about it. Jesus has said a lot of shocking things in these parables as we've been, as we've been going through this. But this has been one of the most shocking things, I think, in this parable. What kind of reward are you earning? with your life? Are you going to be shocked by what reward you get because you never committed everything to God's plan? Are you going to be shocked by how little you end up getting? Again, this is not talking about our salvation. You don't need to worry about that because that has already been sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's biblical. But what this is talking about is reward on top of that salvation. In another portion of scripture, this reward process is described as everything we've done or said passing through the fire of judgment. Think that. A very sober thought. Everything we've ever done or said passing through the fire of judgment. Those things done purely for God and his kingdom are the only things that will pass through 
and be refined into riches. Anything else done for ourselves or any other ulterior motive will be burned up and lost forever. So what are our lives earning? It's a very simple, a very honest, and a very powerful question. What kind of reward are we earning? What are our lives earning? Will we be shocked by overwhelming reward? Or will we be shocked by standing there holding a pile of ashes? And that's all we'll have. That, that will be our life. The entire life we live on this earth holding a pile of ashes. What kind of reward are our lives earning right now? You may have to give up anything and everything you possibly could have in this world to follow Jesus. In fact, that's what so many of our brothers and sisters around the world have already done. Rest assured, you will be rewarded for your faith. And you will be rewarded for your faithfulness to Jesus. That doesn't change. We live this life as pleasing to God as possible out of love, first and foremost, but also knowing we will get a heavenly reward someday. And we do so knowing the amount of this reward will be what God decides. It's not going to be up to us. And the reason why it's all up to God is because he sees and knows everything we do and say now. So he's the only one who has the right to give out this reward. So, here's the encouraging thought. It's never too late to start earning some reward now. As long as you have breath, you can be earning reward. Let us live the rest of our lives working hard for the kingdom. Doing the back-breaking work of soul winning and spiritual growth. Never giving up. And giving up everything we need to in order to further his kingdom on earth. No matter what we lose in this world, we will be given reward that will last forever when Jesus comes back for us. These are some of Jesus' last words to us before his scripture is closed. And I want, to, I want these to be the last words that stick in our minds here. Look, I am coming soon. And then he brings this up. Bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is coming soon, and he's bringing his reward with him. So what are you earning? How much are you going to get? The first and the last will be determined, uh, the, the first and the last will determine that the last shall be first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this shocking and powerful parable here. We might have read this several times over the course of our lives and maybe not fully grasped what you were pointing at, 
what you were driving at, what your point was. Lord God, we know now. So I pray that we would start living our lives if we haven't been for you in every way, surrendering every area of our lives to pleasing you. First and foremost, out of our love for you, because you've given us so much. You have restored so much to us. You have restored us to you. You have made us a part of your family. You have given us eternal life. We know that's coming. But Lord, also to do so knowing that you promise a reward for those who seek you, for those who live your life for you. And so Lord, we, we, we pray that if there's an area of our lives that we haven't fully surrendered to you or there's something we're holding back, something that we haven't held open to an, with an open palm to you, that we would do so right now. And that we would start working hard for your kingdom. Doing what we need to for our families, in leading them, in, in raising them, uh, in the faith and knowledge of you, uh, and, and, and doing what we need to do for our spouses, in helping them grow in their spiritual walk, telling others that we barely even know about you and telling friends that we know very well about you, furthering your kingdom, doing the back-breaking work of, of pouring you into every area of our lives so that you may bring every part of our lives into line with you and into line with your will and into line with the image of your son. And hopefully, we'll be shocked someday by the overwhelming reward that you give to us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.